What a great theme to sing of, our satisfaction in Christ alone. There's no one else we need to look to for satisfaction. He alone provides all that we need. That's our theme this morning in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. If you turn there in your Bibles along with me, if you would please. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 will be our focus this morning. Television commercials can be amazingly effective. Some of the best ones are like miniature movies telling us a story in just 30 seconds. They can move us. They can inspire us. They can make us laugh. They can make us cry. But remember always... Always, always, they're trying to tell, sell us something. They're trying to convince us that we need something more. That we need something more than we currently have. They're always trying to convince us that we're not yet complete. The fact is, we live in a world that is constantly telling us this same message. That what we have is not enough. That how we look is not good enough. That who we are is not enough. This is a world that's largely been created and curated by Madison Avenue. The job of the corporate advertiser, as well as the social media influencer, is to instill in us a sense of deep dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with our look dissatisfaction with our car, dissatisfaction with our phone. And often this is done by showing us what we're missing out on, by not having the newest model, by not following the latest trend. But the underlying message is always this. You need something more. To really experience life to the full, To really be happy, to really be complete, you need something more. Always something more. This is essentially the message that the Colossian believers were hearing from these false teachers that were moving among them. You need something more. Yes, Christ is great. Christ is good. Christ is a great starting point. But you need to... Move on to something else, something more than Christ. Something better is what you need. Friends, this morning I get to share with you the good news that we have everything that we need through faith in Jesus Christ. We can reject the lie that we need something more to be all that God wants us to be. For in Jesus Christ, we have been filled with all the fullness and made complete in Him. That is the truth of our text this morning. It's the truth that is ours to receive by faith, believing. So let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Join with me, if you would please. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Let me read it for us. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception 
according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Friends, this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your grace, which has come to us in fullest measure. Grace upon grace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to grow in our love for you. We want to grow in our faith in you. We want to grow in our satisfaction in you. Lord, help us to believe this truth this morning that you share with us in your word that Jesus Christ is enough. That in Jesus we are made complete. That we have received of his fullness. There's nothing more that we need outside of Christ. Teach us, Lord, we pray. Grow us in faith. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right, Paul says in... Chapter 2 and verse 6, which we studied last week, Paul shares with his readers there that they have received Christ Jesus the Lord just as they have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so they are to walk in Him. Back in verse 6 there, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Paul uses the word walk there as a metaphor for living life. As you began, so continue. As you received Christ, so walk in Christ. This is now how we're to live. This is how we're to conduct ourselves. By faith. As we received Christ by faith, so we are to walk in Christ by faith. Then in verse 7, Paul elaborates on the nature of the Christian's walk by explaining that this walk is indeed a walk of faith. Here in verses 8 through 12, Paul shares with his readers some help in how they can continue to grow in their walk of faith. How they can continue walking in Christ by faith. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see five keys for continuing our walk of faith in Christ. Five helps, if you will. Five things that assist us in continuing our walk of faith in Christ. All right, first of all, in verse 8, Paul says we're to avoid captivity to deceitful philosophies that are not according to Christ. Avoid captivity. Paul cautions them here. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. See to it, Paul says. Make sure this doesn't happen to you, Christian. It's a warning. Be on your guard. Watch out for this. There's a pitfall 
ahead of you. Be careful that you don't fall into it. And what is the danger? The danger is that there are people and philosophies that are seeking to take us captive. Since ancient times, slave raiders would seek to take people captive in order to enslave them. And it was a great fear that people had that an enemy army or a raiding party would capture them or their family members and take them away into a life of slavery. The Bible calls this man-stealing. And it's a great sin, of course. But Paul uses this common fear as a metaphor for the danger of being taken captive into a kind of mental and spiritual slavery by these deceptive philosophies and those who teach them. The means for this mental and spiritual captivity is through philosophy and empty deception. Perhaps a better translation would be empty, deceitful philosophy. Empty, deceitful philosophy. Philosophy, of course, is made up of those two Greek words, philos and sophia, love and knowledge or wisdom. And so at its most literal, philosophy is simply a love of knowledge or a love of wisdom. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving knowledge, just as there's nothing right with despising knowledge. The study of knowledge or philosophy is not what Paul is warning against here. Some have wrongly concluded from this verse that Christians should not study philosophy. But I do not think that is what this verse is teaching. Paul had studied himself under some of the greatest teachers of his time. And in his writings, he showed a... a, a, Conversance, a knowledge of of Jewish and Greek and Roman philosophies and religions and worldviews. Paul wasn't against learning. He wasn't against studying or gaining knowledge. He wasn't even against a knowledge of pagan philosophy or pagan religions. Not at all. What Paul is warning us here is of our being taken captive by these empty And deceitful philosophies. Notice he says that the philosophy he's concerned about here is empty and deceitful. It's empty in that it has no real substance. It doesn't provide any real answers and it doesn't lead to any fulfilling destination. It's empty. It's like a diet of Twinkies and cotton candy. There's not much to it. It can't sustain you. It's empty. Not only this, is this philosophy empty, but it's also deceitful. It's a philosophy that's not grounded in the truth of the way things really are, but instead it is based on lies and deceit. This philosophy that could take the Colossian believers captive is further described as being according to the tradition of men. And according to the elementary principles of the world. This philosophy is built on worldly understandings and human traditions passed down from one generation to the next. 
built on the elementary principles of the world. The word that Paul uses here is stoicheia. And it seems to mean that this philosophy was being inspired by evil spiritual beings. So it had its source not in God and his perfect knowledge that he discloses to us both in general revelation and in special revelation, but rather it is a philosophy that is based on the lies of the enemy. This shouldn't surprise us. The devil is a liar and he's the father of lies. Satan has been dealing an empty and deceitful philosophy since he first tempted Eve in the garden, right? He was trying to sell her an empty and deceitful philosophy. What was that philosophy? Half God said, you will not die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. Ever since then, Satan has been doling out empty and deceitful philosophies, trying to gain followers and keep people from the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. This philosophy, which was empty and deceitful, stands in stark contrast to the truth we have in Christ. Look back at Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In Christ... In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember we said that Christ is the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge. And it's all in him. It's all to be found in him. And then Paul says in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. People will try to delude you, distract you, lure you away with their persuasive arguments. But their persuasive arguments are built on lies, not the truth. Christ is our treasure chest, and in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whereas the philosophies of this world are empty and deceitful and delude those who follow them. If we accept these philosophies as true, we ourselves will be deluded and find ourselves taken captive and enslaved both mentally and spiritually. So Paul warns us and says that we are to see to it that it doesn't happen to us, that we're to be careful, that we're to be discerning, that we're to check facts and truth claims against the word of God and see if it squares up. Take care, be cautious, watch out. Study, learn, read, yes, but always do so with discernment and whatever is contrary to Christ, reject it as being empty and deceitful. Any philosophy, any religion, any worldview that rejects Jesus Christ, that does not take Christ into account, is ultimately an empty and deceitful philosophy that if pursued to its final end, will lead us only to destruction. Any philosophy that doesn't take into account the identity and the lordship of Jesus Christ is a philosophy that is not in full accord with the truth. Whether it's the worldly philosophy of materialism that denies the existence of spiritual realities, 
or the worldly philosophy of humanism that says that man is the measure of all things, denying our accountability to our creator, or the worldly philosophy of hedonism which says that the purpose of our life is to seek pleasure without reference to an objective moral standard, or the worldly philosophy of relativism that says there is no absolute truth, or the worldly philosophy of a works religion which says we can somehow earn our way to peace with God or satisfaction of the soul. These are just a few of the empty, deceitful philosophies that run rampant in the world that we are to watch out for so that we too are not taken captive by them. So is there anything that can help us from being taken captive? Is there anything we can do to guard and defend against this kind of a mental and spiritual raid on us? Yes. And Paul begins to remind them of the truth of the gospel in verses 9 through 12. And it's the gospel itself that protects us from being carried off and held captive by these false and deceitful philosophies. That brings us to the second key. And that is, remember that Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. And we need to keep that in mind. As we interact with these different philosophies and ideas that are out there in the marketplace, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is God. Verse 9, For in Him, in Christ, in Jesus All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the God-man. Jesus Christ is God dwelling with us, tabernacling with us. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is truly God and truly man. So Paul here in verse 9 is repeating what he's already said in Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, you remember that, that hymn of of glorious Christology. In chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul declares that Christ is the image of the invisible God. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. All the fullness of what it is to be God dwells in Jesus in bodily form. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Such was the nature of Jesus' deity that he could say that, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Fullness is an important term throughout the book of Colossians. Fullness. It was a term that the false teachers were using and they were batting it about in their empty and deceitful philosophy. They were saying that, look, you you need more than just Christ in order to experience fullness. You want fullness, don't you? You don't want to be empty, do you? You want this fullness fullness, well then you're going to need more than Christ. 
And so Paul picks up on this term fullness and he, like a judo move, uses it against them. He says, yeah, you want to talk about fullness? Let's talk about fullness. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. He was lacking in deity in no way. So Paul intentionally uses this fullness language here to explain that there is nothing deficient in Jesus. Jesus possesses all the fullness of deity in bodily form. The Apostle John explained the Son of God's incarnation this way in his prologue to his gospel. He says this, And the Word became flesh, the eternal Son of God, the wisdom of God, The eternal communication of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is God in the flesh. As the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament was the place of God's presence among his people, as God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and the temple, so in the New Testament, Jesus has become the locus, the location of God's presence among his people. Jesus himself is the tabernacle and the temple. He is the The substance of what the shadows of the tabernacle and temple ultimately pointed to. The presence of God among us. So Jesus himself is the dwelling place. He is the fullness of God. And all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. God has become a man and his name was Jesus. This truth is so significant, so revolutionary, so groundbreaking that to be ignorant of it or to ignore it or to reject it is to miss the central principle for truly understanding the universe and everything in it. And especially the meaning of life. Why are we here? What is this all about anyway? If you reject the divinity of Jesus, you've already been taken captive and carried off into mental and spiritual slavery by empty and deceitful philosophies. So the first step to guarding against that is remembering and affirming and believing that Jesus is God. Amen? Thirdly, Realize that in Christ, we've been granted fullness. Fullness. Paul picks up on this term again. Again, you want to talk about fullness? Colossian heretics? I'm happy to talk about fullness. Let's talk about fullness. From verse Nine, he's talked about fullness. Now he applies it to the Christian in verse 10. He talked about fullness in relationship to Jesus in verse 9. Now he talks about fullness in relation to the Christian in verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. 
The word translated made complete in the New American Standard Bible, which is what I'm preaching from, is a word that is very close to the word that was used in verse 9 to speak of the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. So here in verse 10, Paul says we've been made full in Christ. We've been made complete in Christ. Okay, Christ has been poured into us and the glass is full with Christ. Okay? We have received this fullness from God by faith in Christ. So through Christ's fullness, now we have been made full. The believer in Jesus Christ has been made full in Christ. What does it mean to be made full in Christ? It means that as the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ, so the fullness of Christ dwells in us. You see the parallel? You say, I see the parallel, but it kind of blows my mind. Well, join the party. It is mind-blowing that of the fullness that Christ has with deity, so we have that fullness of Christ himself in us. Now, that doesn't make us deity. Okay, don't jump that shark. That's not what Paul is saying. But as Christ is fully God, so we have fully a share in Christ. As Jesus Christ is in no way lacking in what it means to be God, so we are in no way lacking in what it means for Christ to be in us and to have the hope of glory. Chapter 1, verse 27. As Jesus Christ is filled with all the fullness of what it means to be God, so we are filled with all the fullness of Christ himself. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, you've confessed your sins to God and trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ, to be your only Savior, then you can't get any more of Christ than you already have. You already are a full possessor. Christ already fully indwells you. Of His fullness you have received. And grace upon grace, John 1.16. The tabernacling presence of God, which indwells Jesus Christ, now fully indwells you. This fullness of Christ indwelling us has all kinds of wonderful implications and applications. Let me share a couple. It means that Christ's unceasing presence is always in us and with us. He is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. A hope that will never be disappointed. 
removed, taken away. Christ is with you, for Christ is in you. Furthermore, we see from this Christ's sufficiency for us. He is all we need. We're already filled to the full. There's no room for anything else. The glass is full to overflowing. My cup overflows. Because the Lord is so good in giving us His Son in full measure. He is all we need. For He is. Don't forget who He is. He is the glorious Christ of chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn to rise from the dead, never to die again. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This Christ, this Christ is in you. And He's in you to the full. He's not in you meagerly. He's not in you halfway. He's in you with all the fullness that it's possible to receive. In this way, we have been filled with all fullness and made complete in Christ. I love what Peter says, 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ who called us by his own glory and excellence. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything we need because we have all of Christ. Christ is our sufficiency. We have all that we need in him. We don't need to scour the empty and deceitful philosophies of the world to find something more. We don't need to seek some religious exercise or activity that's going to somehow complete us. We have been made complete in Christ already. Fourthly, affirm Christ as the ultimate authority. The last half of verse 10 reminds us that Christ is head over all rule and authority. Look what he says. In him you've been made complete. And then the last half of verse 10, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Colossians 1.16. Paul says there, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Notice that, rulers or authorities. Same word that's used here. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head over all rule and authority. There is no greater authority, no greater power, no greater ruler than Christ. Christ is preeminent over every other authority and power. There is none greater. And the church says, the false teachers were saying that angelic beings were at least as important as Jesus at least as powerful, at least as authoritative as Christ, if not more so. 
Paul here corrects this falsehood. Christ is the ultimate authority. He's the head over all. Being the creator of all. This truth is important for it reminds us that the world we live in is not dualistic. With evil and good standing in equal but opposite positions. Okay? The empty and deceitful philosophy of Star Wars is not true. Right? Now you can watch it and enjoy it, but just don't be taken captive by it and buy into it and believe it. There are not Jedis, okay? I'm sorry, I know. The world is not a dualism of good and evil. The truth of Scripture and of Christ teaches us that there is but one ruler and authority who reigns supreme, and that is Christ Jesus the Lord, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, the position of honor, authority, and power. And this helps us to not be afraid of either man nor spirit being. For neither earthly rulers and authorities nor angelic rulers and authorities are able to thwart Christ's purposes for us or Christ's work in us. So rest in Christ's supreme power and authority. Finally, fifthly, recall that both our initiation into Christ and our spiritual union with Christ are by faith. And this is what it comes back to again and again. By faith. In verses 11 and 12, Paul writes about both circumcision and baptism. But he does so in a way that I believe is metaphorical. He's using them as spiritual teaching Metaphors. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision, not a physical circumcision. And he's talking about a spiritual baptism, not a physical baptism. First, he mentions circumcision. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the initiatory rite and sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 11, Paul says, We have in Christ been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, a physical circumcision has to be made with hands. But this isn't that kind of circumcision. It's a, it's a spiritual circumcision. In Christ, we've been born again. Our hearts, as it were, have been circumcised. And the, and the body of flesh that used to rule us has been cut off and removed so that we no longer are slaves to sin, but are able to now say no to sin and yes to righteousness. As physical circumcision was the initiation into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, so spiritual circumcision was our initiation into the blessings of the new covenant in Christ. And this spiritual circumcision, which was not made with hands, was received by faith in Jesus Christ. And we were made into new creations. We were given new hearts. We were identified with the people of God. 
Likewise, we've also undergone a a baptism. And again, I think Paul is talking about a spiritual baptism. This baptism is our spiritual union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which happens at the moment of our salvation, at the moment of faith. We were buried with Christ in spiritual union with him so that, that the death that Christ died, we died with him. And we were also spiritually raised up with him through the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. As Jesus died, so we died with him. As Jesus rose again, so we rose with him. In spiritual union with him. Signified here by a baptism. That is, I believe, a spiritual baptism. We were baptized into Christ. Immersed into Christ. So that our lives were hidden in Christ. And the death he died, we died with him. And the life he lives now, we live with him. It's the beauty of the gospel itself. Spiritual union and baptism into Christ's death and resurrection is beautifully portrayed and manifested publicly in water baptism as the believer in Jesus Christ publicly professes faith in Christ and identifies with Christ in his death and resurrection in the waters of baptism. But that is the physical representation of the spiritual realities that Paul is talking about here. The benefits of both our spiritual circumcision and our spiritual baptism in Christ are received by faith. Both our initiation into Christ and His new covenant and our spiritual union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection are by faith and by faith alone. We receive this fullness of Christ and all that he's done for us and all that he is, we receive it by faith, trusting in Jesus alone to be our Savior. In these verses, Paul is combating lies. The lie that Christ is not enough. The lie that the Colossian believers needed something more than what they currently had. No. Christ has come. He is God in the flesh. The fullness of deity in bodily form. And by faith, Christ has come to indwell us in all of His fullness. We have received this fullness and it has made us complete and given us everything we need for life and godliness. Christ is our all-sufficient Savior and we are complete in Him. Praise be to God the Son, Jesus Christ, for His fullness and for the fullness that He gives to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, protect us in these present evil days against worldly and empty, deceitful philosophies that would seek to take us captive and leave us mentally and spiritually enslaved and ultimately lead us off into destruction and death. 
Lord, we pray that we would be discerning and careful with what we accept as truth. That we would always measure it against your word and against your son. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are indeed God in the flesh. You are the God-man. You are very God of very God, truly God and truly man. And because that's true, because the fullness of deity dwells in you, when you promise to come and indwell us, we know the fullness of who you are indwells us. And that we now, because of your indwelling presence, are always assured of your presence with us, always assured of your sufficiency for us. So Lord, help us to take refuge in your presence, in your person, in your promises. We thank you for this gospel which has saved us, this gospel which has sealed us, this gospel which continues to nourish us. Guard us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.